Psalm 73 is the psalm we're going to look at this morning. I will read. We're going to read all 28 verses. Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet cling close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. The imagination of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 10. Therefore His people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and have chastened every morning. Verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away with sudden tears. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. (coughs) Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, these are Your words, ancient words, that speak truth to us. Truth so relevant could have been written with the ink still wet on the paper. Lord, we pray that You would grace us with an understanding of this, that we would see more clearly who You are, and that we would respond with a heart of faith. Lord, that 
Those who come this morning with the crisis of faith, much like Asaph, Lord, I pray that they would land the same place Asaph lands. I pray that we would all land the same place Asaph lands with this heart cry that You are more precious than valuable than anything life has to offer. So Lord, help us. I pray for those who do not know You in the sweetness of Your grace, who are strangers of grace. Open their eyes to see Christ and turn to Him for the first time in repentance and faith. In the precious name of Jesus, Amen. Today in Afghanistan, believers are running for their lives. Missionaries who have planted themselves there, some of them are fleeing to other countries. Others will stay and almost certainly die. All the while, the Taliban march around in military gear paid for by you folks. A good friend of mine, faithful pastor, minister of the Word of God, husband, father of three young children, is diagnosed with colon cancer, dies at age 33. Meanwhile, Hugh Hefner lives to a ripe old age of 91, living the rest of his days in his Playboy mansion. Planned Parenthood makes millions of dollars every year through the process of murdering the unborn and even selling baby body parts to others. Well, crisis pregnancy centers, pregnancy help centers across the country have fundraisers every year trying to make money and half a million half a billion dollars of our tax dollars goes to support planned parenthood every year. Biblical examples? How about the apostle Paul? Writes that letter to the Philippians from a Roman Prison writes the letter from uh, uh, of Second Timothy, probably in his last imprisonment, awaiting his execution, lonely, isolated, doesn't even have a blanket. All the while, perverted Nero is on the throne, banqueting. It's life in a fallen world. The reality that so often the wicked prosper. <coughs> And the righteous suffer. This was Asaph's struggle. This was Asaph's crisis of faith. Questioning, doubting, wondering about God and His goodness when it seems that God rewards the wicked and seems to punish the righteous. In fact, something of his struggle is spelled out in verses 13 and 14 when he, you can almost envision him raising his hands to heaven. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. When I pondered to understand this, verse 16, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 21 and 22. 
When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. This was Asaph's crisis of faith. I love the honesty of Scriptures. Scriptures that present to us often the struggle of faith. The reality of doubts intermingled with faith. Life is not always black and white. This was Asaph's struggle. Let's look at verse 1. Well, even before verse 1, verse 1 in the Hebrew, a psalm of Asaph. This was written by Asaph or one who was in uh, amongst that guild of musicians that David had appointed. Um, we don't know if it was exactly Asaph himself or, or one of his, like I said, those who are in his guild, much like the sons of Korah. But this is one of the handful of psalms that Asaph wrote. It's the first psalm of book 3. And, and there is a an interesting note to that because the struggle of this first psalm of book 3 is over the, the prosperity of the wicked. But the first psalm of the first book of psalms speaks of the prosperity of the righteous. Blessed is the man. Blessed, happy is the man who does not... Walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's like this tree planted by streams of water, and he bears fruit in season. But this first psalm of this first psalm of book three struggles with the reality that it seems like the wicked prosper. But notice how the psalm starts out. The psalm starts out much like you know some movies will begin the movie with a closing scene, and you know it just kind of enters into the scene. You're like, "What's going on here?" And then it goes back to the beginning of the story, and the story unfolds, and you kind of get then to that closing scene again. Well, in a similar way, that's how Psalm 73 starts out. It starts out where Asaph is going to close, namely, on the goodness of God. He says in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he's going to tell us the story of his crisis of faith as he was doubting God's goodness. And so he takes us through this in verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. He's going to tell us a story of when he was in his walk with the Lord, stumbling around, slipping, almost falling, but not quite. Why was he almost slipping? Why were his steps unsteady? Why was his gait wobbling? Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw literally the shalom of the wicked. The peace of the wicked. His struggle here 
is zeroing in on when he's looking at the arrogant, the wicked, they seem to be prospering and his heart is swelling up and wishing that that was him. That he had peace. We're going to see Asaph's struggle here as he focuses in on what he doesn't have and in on what others have. He begins to be dissatisfied with God. He begins to be deceived in his thinking, thinking that that God has kind of fallen asleep as the wicked prosper, thinking that all is well, that God seems to be rewarding the wicked. Now I'm sure you've never had an envious thought in your heart. Sure, you've never struggled over the reality of maybe an unbelieving coworker who seems to be promoted and you seem to be stuck in the same dead end position for many years. Or perhaps you're single and desire to get married and other unbelieving people around you seem to have happy marriages or maybe you are married and other unbelieving single people around you seem to be happy and you covet that or maybe you struggle with the reality of desiring to have children and are not able to and you see how many parents, mothers in this world seem to be as fertile as can be and yet don't even care for their own children. Many of their children are taken away by children's services because of neglect or abuse. The struggle can be real. The struggle can be real as you see the prosperity of the wicked. Notice this section is filled with they and theirs. They and theirs. This is them. He's looking not at God, but he's looking at the wicked around him. Verse 4, he says there are no pains in their death. It it, it seems they, they even seem to die well and die easy. There's no great tragedies. They seem to live long and prosper. Or even as the great theologian Billy Joel sang, only the good die young. The second part of verse 4, their body is fat. Now Asaph is not name calling here. Being fat was uh, generally characterized by prosperity. Saying they're they're prosperous, they have much. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Everything seems to go easy for them. Tragedy doesn't seem to strike them the way that it strikes the righteous. They lie, they cheat, they steal. It seems like every, all is well with them. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their prosperity just seems to make them even more and more prideful. And it, 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 it's, it's bad enough that 
they seem to experience all of these earthly blessings despite their wickedness, but they're arrogant. They think that it came from their own hand, their own success, their own skill. None of that. They're violent. They have no pains of conscience and stepping on anybody who gets in their way. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. Again, he's not insulting. (laughs) But what he's saying here is it's, it's the envious eye. They not only have much, but their eyes are large and they want to take more. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. Again, they're not only content to be, to be fat and sassy, but they want to step on others. They even use their, their power to oppress the weak. Verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Not only do they oppress the weak, but they speak blasphemies against the Almighty. They rail against the God of heaven. The Lutheran commentator Leopold says, success has made them self-assertive, proud, without regard to the rights of God and of man. Indeed, a repulsive spectacle. Verse 10, Therefore His people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They seem to gain here an entourage of disciples who just suck up water as if from an oasis. Verse 11, They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Now, they don't seem to be out and out atheists, but they're practical atheists. God doesn't care. I can do what I want to do. He's not going to stop me. And then Asaph goes back to the I. He's moved from the they and the there and the but now to the eye, verse thirteen. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is his struggle. He's saying, you know, I've been trying to live a righteous life. I've been trying to keep pure. And life just seems to get harder and harder. They don't seem to care about living for righteousness. And they seem to be prospering. Is all of this a waste of time? Perhaps you've asked yourself similar questions. Is obeying Christ really for my good? The rest of the world seems to be happy, free, liberated, 
Are you like Asaph and your feet ready to slip? Are you ready to dive into a sea of wickedness because you envy the wicked? Verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, Asaph knows there's something wrong with his thinking. And and instead of posting it on Facebook, or making a TikTok video about of it, about it, he he has some wisdom to keep his mouth shut. Because he realizes that this kind of thinking is infectious. And it might infect, notice he says, the generation of your children. This might impact what others think. This might be sowing seeds of doubt and unbelief in the lives of others. And again, this is very countercultural because, right, you, you just need to be true to yourself. Just express yourself. But sometimes wicked thoughts in our head need to stay there, be hogtied and slaughtered. But also notice here, Because we may be tempted to read these first 15 verses and think, he's not a Christian. (laughs) This is not Christian thinking. I mean, maybe this is a testimony of his conversion, right? I don't think so. Because you notice he's saying, if I would have... If I would speak thus, behold, I would betray the generation of your children. He knows his thinking is wrong. He knows that God is good. This, my friends, is the struggle of faith. That often faith is intermingled with doubts and unbelief. That often the certainty of faith is mixed in with uncertainty. Sometimes we think that Christians don't struggle with doubts. And because of that, we can set up the standard of what a Christian is and it's actually a fictitious standard. And then when we think, well, that's not me, we think, well, I'm not a Christian. But look at Asaph's struggle here. This is a real struggle of faith. A real battle. Listen to the French... Reformer Jean Calvin from his institutes, he says, when we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle in their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience never interrupted by any disturbance. It's funny, Calvin is often portrayed as this cold, robotic, truth-dispensing machine, but he's very pastoral here, is he not? He's highlighting that faith often is intermingled with uncertainty. Security is often intermingled with uncertainty in the struggle of faith. This was Asaph's struggle. Perhaps it's your struggle this morning. 
And I think to some degree a struggle of all of us in varying degrees. Verse 16, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He's confused. He's disoriented. His fixation in his gaze upon the prosperity of the wicked, he he doesn't have an anchor for his footing and he's disoriented and he's wobbly and he's ready to slip. It's troublesome in his sight. Verse 17, this is the transition of the psalm. I love this. Until. It's like the, the but of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. The sanctuary. The sanctuary in the Old Testament, uh, it began uh, with the tabernacle. The holy place and the holy of holy place. This place where sacrifices were offered, where Israelites could meet with their God and they came to God through blood sacrifice and through priesthood. And that was the requirement to meet with God. And there's something in this moment of him coming into the sanctuary. And then later, by the way, I said it started with the tabernacle. And then later on during the, the, the reign of Solomon, David had made preparations for Solomon to build the temple. And then there was the, the temple it was a more permanent fixed structure than the, the tent of the tabernacle. But it was the same thing. You met with God through priests, through blood, through sacrifice. And there was something in the midst of this, in this experience of him going into the tabernacle or to the temple and him realizing his own self as a sinner, his realizing the need to meet with God only through blood sacrifice, and in his laying his hand on the head of that animal, that animal being slaughtered, and in meeting with God through that sacrifice, that he comes to see things more clearly. To understand reality better. To understand that man needs a substitute. And without it, he's under the judgment of God. And perhaps even wondering about God's gracious dealings with him, that he would allow him to approach the holy God through blood sacrifice, that He would allow Him to have His sins atoned for. And now He begins to see things more clearly. Verse, The end of verse 17, He says, Then I perceive their end. So now He's back to the there and the them, but now He sees the there and the them. It ain't going so well for them. It's not going to go well. It may seem like it's going well for them, but in the end, it's not going to go well for them. Verse 18, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Asaph here in 18 to 20 is speaking of their judgment. He begins to see the wicked 
of whom he was envying, they are running headlong into destruction. He's realizing his own folly that his desire to be in the sandals of these people would be to desire to be under the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. He's saying, he's like waking himself up saying, Whoa, what was I wanting? Verse 21. When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Again, he goes back to the eye. He's confessing his own stupidity. He's saying, my heart was embittered. I was pierced within. I was, I was angry. And then verse 22, I was like a dog. I was like a beast. I was like a donkey. What does he mean by that? You see, animals are very nearsighted. They live for the next meal. I hate to break it to you, they only love you because you feed them. <laughs> this is how animals are. They don't keep the long view. They're not preparing for their retirement. They're not thinking about eternity. They're thinking about what's for lunch. And he's, he's confessing, this is how I was. I, I was so superficial in my understanding as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was like an animal. Just like a, a dog wagging its tongue. I wish that was me. I wish I had that. He's saying, this is foolishness. And I was angry. But then, this is beautiful, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He says, yet I am continually with you. I'm on your team. We're walking side by side. And then he tells the reason why. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. We have a two-year-old in our home. She doesn't have very steady gait. She kind of walks like a zombie. And when you're walking with her, especially up steps, down steps, you need to hold her hand. You hold her hand because you don't want her to fall. Now this takes us back to verse 2. What did Asaph say? My feet almost slipped. But God was holding my hand. He was making sure I didn't fall. He was like the Father in heaven with His big hand engulfing my little hand to make sure that in the midst of my wobbliness, in the midst of my foolishness, I didn't fall down. What an amazing God. Despite His acting like an animal, despite His instability, God wasn't going to let go of Him. 
truly here, this is the perseverance of the saints. Or the preservation of the saints. He says in verse 24, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. As someone has said, the arrogance of thinking you could lose your salvation when you have it. Because that means you're the one propping yourself up. But not according to the Scriptures. It's the Father who holds you. As Jesus says, My sheep are in My hand, and My Father is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of His hand. Now, are you responsible to persevere in the faith? Yes. But your perseverance is because He's holding your hand, not because of your almighty willpower. So, the rest of our time, I want us to look at three ways in which Asaph moves from his disoriented discontent to delight in God. First of all, to be satisfied in the delightful uniqueness of God. We see this in verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. A truism of life is if you focus on what you do not have, you will always be miserable. But instead, if you look at what God has graciously given you with a thankful heart, you will always be happy. Now, I say always, it's going to be intermingled with flows of doubt and struggle and misery. And it doesn't make you immune from suffering. But Asaph begins to see what he has. His eyes begin to be open to the reality, not of what he doesn't have, some of the stuff that the wicked have, but what he does have, namely an amazing God in heaven who's been holding his hand all along. And so he utters this tremendous cry, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Whatever the wicked possess, it's nothing compared to what the person in the Lord possesses. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't speak a ton about what heaven will be like. It says some things. But the main attraction of heaven is God Himself. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. In the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The main attraction of heaven is God Himself will be with them as their God. 
And this was the testimony of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians in his first Roman imprisonment. He's awaiting his trial. He doesn't know exactly what the verdict is going to be, if it's going to be off with his head, or if he's going to be able to continue on. You remember he talks about how he basically made it into prison ministry and he's been witnessing to everybody. And and even some from the Roman guard had been converted. And then he makes this amazing statement. As he's not sure whether he's going to live or he's going to die, he says, it's better to depart and to be with Christ. He says, if I die, I win. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain because I get more of Christ. And as John MacArthur has said, if anything is substituted for Christ on the beginning of that phrase, then dying is not gain. In other words, if to live is fill in the blank, dying is not gain. If to live is your career, dying is not gain. If to live is money, guess what? You ain't taking it with you. Dying is not gain. If to live even is something as good as family, Dying is not gain because you have to say goodbye. If to live is friendships, dying is not gain because you have to say goodbye. But if Christ is the chief affection of your heart, then dying is gain. And this is Asaph's testimony. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides besides you I desire nothing upon earth. As he looked at all the things on earth. He said, God is my most precious possession. It was Samuel Rutherford, the famous one who wrote Lex Rex, but that's another sermon for another day. He was a Scottish Puritan who said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without Thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have Thee still, it would be heaven to me, for Thou art all the heaven I want. Friend, is that the testimony of your heart that your heart cherishes and loves the true and living God? This God who in the midst of your struggles and doubts and your wavering, He's holding your hand and by the grace of God, you're still sitting here following Jesus this morning. Thank you, Lord. Is He your treasure? And besides you, I desire nothing on on earth. This is a staggering statement a world a present world with all the gifts that God gives of food and marriage and children and friendships and warm blankets and donuts and coffee and pizza and pizza. (laughs) All of these enjoyments that God gives. And Asaph says, besides you I desire nothing on earth. And what it is, is the reality that each of these gifts from God's hand, 
they are but echoes of eternity. They are but indicative tokens of the kindness of God who is Himself the source. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our soul can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers, mothers, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are streams, but God is the ocean. You see, all the enjoyments that we get to receive from the good hand of the good Father in heaven are reflections of the goodness of His character, but He is the source of all. And how wonderful will heaven be where we don't make an idol out of the gifts of God, but are to enjoy them and can enjoy them with great delight and have a perfect heart response of adoration and worship to the great Father who is. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail. Verse 26, My flesh, His outer man, His heart, His inner man. And I think His failing heart is probably referring to His his heart failure at the beginning of the passage where he's you know beating on his chest and he, he 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 he's having a myocardial infarction spiritually speaking as he's pondering the prosperity of the wicked even if i die even if i'm struggling spiritually god is the strength of my heart in my portion forever the psalmist knows that even death cannot separate him from being satisfied in god Leopold again says, God remains a treasure that death cannot rob us of. And even in the very experience of dying, God supports His own and is more than ever their best possession. Notice how he describes God. He says, You are the strength of my heart. You're the one who upholds my heart in my portion forever. My portion. The word portion is is the idea of inheritance. Listen to Numbers 18.20. The Lord said to Aaron, I have no inheritance in their land nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. In other words, He told the Levites, you're not getting any land. I'm your treasure. I'm your portion. I'm your asset. So, Asaph turns from the glitter of this world to the gold that he has in God and he says I'm satisfied in God. And so if you want if you find yourself in this crisis that Asaph was in and and and, and coveting the prosperity of the wicked you need to turn from the glitter of this world to the gold of what you have in Christ. But secondly, not only to be satisfied in the delightful uniqueness of God, but be sobered by the judgment of God. Notice verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. 
And this is exactly what he says earlier on in the psalm, right? When he says at the end of verse 17, Then I perceive their end, namely the wicked. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You have cast them down to destruction. They are utterly destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, arouse, you will despise their form. He's understanding and he's being sobered up by the long view of history. Eternity. That while the wicked may prosper in this life, it's not that God's justice is revoked. It's not that God in His courtroom is somehow not functioning properly. They will have their day in court. And friends, we are often discontent and unthankful because we think that God's not being fair. But if our justice calibrator, if our justice scale is calibrated rightly, I should say, then we would understand we deserve eternal, unending suffering. And any good thing we get to enjoy in this life is a grace from the hand of Almighty God. And those who are outside of Christ have the guns of God's justice aimed at them. So now all of a sudden we're beginning to see things more clearly and properly. That to envy the position of the wicked And to desire to be in their place is to desire to have a bounty on our head that God the Almighty has set. That's not a good place you want to be. And the reality is is that according to Romans chapter 2, all the enjoyments that an unbeliever receives in this life, the common graces as theologians call them, will ultimately become a common curse. Because every good gift that God gives is to lead them to repentance and if they don't repent, they're just storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your, un- because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath in the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So that every one of those 91 years that Hugh Hefner lived in rebellion against God will stand up in judgment against him. Everything he got to enjoy by the hand of the gift of God Himself will be a testimony at the day of judgment. And the same is true for every unbelieving heart. That all the good gifts from God's hand when not responded to in repentance and faith just makes a person more accountable before God. And so obviously for Asaph and every believer, it's foolishness to covet the wicked. But also... It's sobering. 
Friend, if you are sitting here this morning outside of Christ, judgment day will be so easy for God. He sees all. He sees everything. And He has extended His hand of kindness to you over and over. And even this morning, He is extending His hand of kindness to to you. That He will be reconciled to you. He will forgive all. But you need to lay down your weapons of warfare against Him and submit to Him. You need to subject yourself to King Jesus and trust only in His perfect saving work upon the cross. If you don't, you will be under the hand of God's judgment for all eternity. That is utter foolishness. So my friend, believing child of God this morning, to covet the wicked is utter folly. Instead, we should pity the wicked. Our hearts should swell with compassion that in the midst of their blindness they rail against God. They think they can box with Him. And we ought to be ambassadors of grace that this great God that you've been stiff-arming your whole life, He will have mercy if you will but come to Him. But not only... Do you need to be satisfied in the delightful uniqueness of God? To be sobered by the judgment of God? But third, to be satisfied in the goodness of God. Notice verse 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness, and and this is a a beautiful kind of bookend to the psalm, right? Because this is where he started. Truly God is good to Israel. That was, the, that was the opening scene of the psalm. And now we, we've got there. He finally, his eyes, finally can see God and His goodness. He can finally see that the nearness of God is for His good. He's seeing that God's commands indeed are good. As Deuteronomy 10.13 says, Keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Even God's laws, my friends, they're not God being a big meanie trying to keep you from having fun, but they're trying to protect you from poison. They're reflections of His good and kind character. Earlier, he believed that prosperity was good for him. But now he believes that Being close to God is good for him. The nearness of God. Often the language of the priesthood and coming before God or even coming, entering His his sanctuary was to draw near to God. Asaph begins to realize that this is for his good. The world works for power, prestige, the approval of men. But we work to be close to God. And not in any kind of meritorious way, but to walk closely with Him, knowing that He is good. 
And this really does, this nearness of God that is for His good, it takes us back to that transition point. The transition point of the psalm, the entire psalm hinges on verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. This was how he became reoriented. This is how he came from discontent, disorientation, to now seeing clearly, seeing rightly, walking stably with his God. He came into the sanctuary of God. And again, as we mentioned, in looking at this verse, the sanctuary, this is the place where man met with God through priest and through sacrifice. So where is the sanctuary of God today? Where is the meeting place of God today? Well, in John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was referring to the temple of his body. Or John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John in John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and what? Tabernacled among us. Sanctuary of God today for the new covenant believer is found in Christ. He is our priest. He is our place of sacrifice. He is the one who has atoned for sin. He is the way to God. He is how we meet with God. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. The Apostle John again said in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And this, my friends, it is the Gospel that reorients our life. It helps us to see things clearly. It helps us to understand the end of the wicked and the treasure we have in earthen vessels in Christ. The sanctuary of God is found in Christ today. So let us go to Him. And in doing so, we'll be able to see a little bit more clearly. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, forgive us for our discontent, our grumbling hearts, our not seeing things clearly. We thank You for the Gospel that corrects our thinking. It helps us to see the price tags that the world places on stuff are incorrect. But Lord, as we come to the sanctuary, You change those price tags and we see what an amazing thing we have in You. And we too can cry with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but You? And besides You, I desire nothing upon earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but You are my strength, my portion forever. Thank You, Lord. Amen.